going to uh, turn to God's word now, and Phil is going to come and read to us from Romans. This morning's reading is found on page 1134 in the Church Bibles. It's Romans chapter 7, verses 15 to 25. I do not understand what I do. What I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work, Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. down there. Let us pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives. For the glory of your great name. Amen. What do we do? How do we avoid doing the things that we don't want to do, etc., etc.? It's a complicated world, and sometimes it would be good to have someone tell you exactly what is the right thing to do. Now, in connection with that, I have a book with me today from about the 1880s called The Enquirer's Oracle, subtitled What to Do and How to Do It. A ready reference book upon family matters, health and education, home management, home culture, and a countless variety of subjects. It's not exactly a moral guide, but it's a guide to the etiquette of daily life in the second half of the 19th century. Although I think it was aimed at a certain section of society, because it does talk about how to manage your servants and things like that. So it wasn't for everybody, I'm sure. 
But in this book, there's some lovely examples of wisdom from that time. For example, when you next give a ball, this is the advice you should follow, invitations to a ball are usually given for 8 o'clock, though no one is expected to go till 9 o'clock at the earliest, and 10 is the more usual hour for going. Shocking behavior in those days, wasn't it? All those late nights. And then there's also some advice about achieving a happy marriage. But the section I'm going to read first, I don't think would go down extremely well nowadays. Just find this little page. There we go. Concessions to husbands. This is advice to all the, the wives. As the husband has more of the hardness and of the din of life's battle to bear, his wife should recollect that perhaps he may have had to encounter something very trying or irritating, some business disappointment, a bill come back, a bad debt announced. And it is very difficult for a man to come home quite amiable under these circumstances. <laughs> I know. And although the wife may say the children have been troublesome and the servants tiresome, it would be well for her to recollect that perhaps she should be the more indulgent and forbearing of the two. Okay. Moving swiftly on. <laughs> I've got... <laughs> more of that nature. But some advice remains sound even today. In the same section about courtship and marriage, there's a little bit entitled Angels and Images. We are all of us apt, in spite of the experience of everybody else, to imagine that at last we have found an unfallen angel. We go on courting and idolizing as if men and women could be perfect. We get married, and in a short time, we find that there is a little crack in our idol, and that after all, we have not got perfection. Then comes the question whether we are prepared to exercise a little forbearance. We forget that if we have not got perfect wives, neither have our wives got perfect husbands. Mm, food for thought, <laughs> gentlemen. <laughs> and also, in a section about children, about how to raise your children, this is one that I do like. It says, football should be denounced without qualification as a brutal, savage, and insane pastime. <laughs> I quite agree. In contrast, you'll find two full pages about the rules of croquet. So it kind of demonstrates who it was aimed at. It's an interesting book. Uh, I've not found it of much practical use in the last 40 years since I came across it, but it's a very interesting book. Now, to get back to Paul, which is who we're here to think about this morning, we know that in his epistles, you know, he was often, he was writing at a time when there was a lot of uh, regulation, a lot of rules to follow, rules and regulations that told the people exactly what they should do and how they should do it in any given situation. And yet we know that for Paul, uh, this law, for all its practical applications and for all its claims to bring people closer to God, actually is the means by which sin can increase. Because people, for one thing, do not have the means within themselves to do the right thing and keep that law. Inevitably, it, it brings about sin. And we, we talked about that a little bit last time I was here. But I think my first major point this morning in relation to Romans chapter 7 is a simple question about why are human beings so incapable of sticking to the right path? 
We know how much strength it requires of us to do the right thing at the right time in the right place. Why do we find it so hard? What is it that keeps us from sticking to the path that we know in our hearts we should be following? And let's be honest, most of us, probably all of us, I'm sure, are guilty in some way or other. Now, few of us, I'm sure, have actually broken laws, etc., but we may have been persuaded to cross moral boundaries. And if not then, that, it's almost certain that we have done something which is bad for us rather than the thing which is good for us and the people around us. There may well be biological or psychological reasons behind many of our misdemeanors as human beings. Maybe that need to be liked and to feel loved. Maybe that craving for something sweet when really we've had enough. You know, when you put your hand in the biscuit jar and you pick out two biscuits when you don't need any. Simple things like that, and big things too. Maybe there's something about our perceived need to come first, to be the leader of the pack. Something that makes us attend to our own interests before everybody else's. So many needs within us, so many feelings within us can lead us to, to go off on the wrong path. And I'm sure that we would recognize these feelings and many more besides. Maybe what I'm looking at here is the contemporary way in which the world would look at what we, in theological terms, would call original sin. That sinful nature we are born with. That self-centeredness we are born with. It's been part of us ever since creation itself, especially ever since the fall, when Adam and Eve went against those instructions that they had been given. It's unpopular in modern society to talk about these things, isn't it? I have to say, actually, when I was preparing for today, it was, a, it was a struggle. Part of me didn't want to talk about sin, but part of me thought, no, we're here to preach on the word, and that's what we're talking about this morning. Because in the world around us, sin is denied. It's not talked about. It's negative. And yet, for all that, if you look at what's on at the cinemas, there's lots of stories about good and evil, you know, good and bad doing the right thing, doing the wrong thing. People sort of feel that in themselves, and yet it's not talked about. It's not the done thing to say that we are sinners, that we are fallen human beings. But sin is part of our nature. Paul also speaks about sin as something external, doesn't he? Something that enters into our lives. In chapter 7, verse 20, we read, Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And in verse 11, we heard, for sin, sorry, this is before the passage you heard today, in verse 11 of chapter 7, it said, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. Sin is something that can affect us from without, as well as being part of our inner nature. And this externalization of sin is also associated, of course, with the concept of evil. In verse 21 of chapter 7, we read, So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. How often may we have experienced something similar? When we want to do good, there's something stops us, something drags us back, something hinders us. It can happen to us all. And this idea about sin and evil being there in the center waiting for us should, I hope, bring to mind perhaps the Garden of Eden, where sin is lurking close by and enters into human life. 
through that deception of the serpent in the garden. But remember also the story of Cain and Abel. How God spoke to Cain when he was angry because God had not looked favorably on his offering. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, if you want to look at some page 6 in the Bible, it's a long way forward, page 6 in the Bible. Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will it not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. I think Adam and Eve, if we think about that original sin, they sinned in their innocence. But Cain became guilty of allowing his anger to get the better of him. He couldn't be seen as innocent. He had a choice. He was made fully aware of the danger around him. Rather than the innocency of infancy, or the innocence of infancy, Cain shows us that sort of arrogance of, 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 the, of the, the young person, the, the confused teenager, the adult who should and could know better. He chose not to master sin, and so he opened the way for evil to follow. When we think of original sin, the, the sin that's part of our human nature, that self-centeredness, we can allow ourselves to plead not guilty. Whatever we do out of our innate self-centeredness is just being human. But the experience of Cain puts another slant on the story because it says we have the capacity to choose. We have knowledge, we have the capacity to assess and to make a choice about what course of action we take, what decision we make. We are grown up. We have our will. We have the opportunity to close the door on sin, to leave it out there. But we don't so often. We keep that door open too easily. For example, we like to express our anger because we want to make our point. We like to fulfill our own inner passions and needs and desires. We like to amass material wealth to show that we are a little bit superior to the people around us. Maybe we have more servants or we play croquet better, whatever it may be. You know, we like to show that we are somehow at the top. I'm not saying all of us here are like that, but that is part of, a, a part of human nature. And so sin comes about often as a result of our own desires and our own unwillingness to control the action of the self-centered, sinful nature within us. And every one of us, I'm sure, will struggle with this. As Paul expressed in chapter 7, verse 19, very clearly, for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. It is a struggle. Which brings me to a second point. If we struggle with sin, and if the law isn't going to help us, because Paul has already said, well, it's not really helping to get rid of sin. What is the way out of this confusion that Paul describes? And of course, we know he sees it as a major problem. Towards the end of our reading, verse 24, that wonderful phrase, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? What a wretched man I am. 
Now, Jesus, in his ministry, he knew how weak people are to resist what is evil and sinful. We often see Jesus driving out evil spirits as part of his powerful works of healing, showing his authority to the world. In the time of Moses, the law was given as an answer to the problem of sin. Follow the law and you'll be put right with God. But Paul sees that as a problem in itself, serving to highlight sin. And we haven't got the strength to keep that law, so we just fall deeper and deeper into error and sin. So we need to be rescued. And so Paul comes to that at the end of the reading when he declares, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where the answer is. I say obviously for us, clearly that's the answer for Paul. We know that sin is the problem. We know that we struggle with that, with that sin and with that problem. The solution is Jesus taking away the power of sin. Already this morning, we, we've sung about that in so many ways in, in the songs we've had in the first part of the service. Some of the words that we sing in, in the songs and hymns of the church are very powerful statements of what we believe and how Jesus rescues us. Jesus saves us. Jesus is our salvation. And next week, the reading will begin with these words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the beginning of chapter 8. Um, I think Stephan is preaching next week, so I'm not going to stray onto that topic too much. But of course, we can't just sit here this morning and say how awful sin is without also being aware that you know, there is that remedy. There is Jesus and his offering of salvation. We need to go away this morning not feeling that we are burdened with sin and we are failures, but yes, we acknowledge the struggle and we also acknowledge that Christ has lifted us up by his grace from that sinful state and he wants us to walk with him. So don't just hold on to the sin, hold on to the salvation. And I'd like to add another point here, a third and hopefully final point, which is slightly different to the first two and not necessarily directly leading on from the first two. We've had the sin, we've had the rescue. My final point is, who is speaking in chapter 7? Well, of course, it's Paul. Paul's writing. Paul's writing, yes, but it's unclear whether Paul is actually talking about himself as an example or talking about human beings in general. Throughout the passage, he talks in the first person singular, I. I do not understand what I do. It is no longer I myself that do it. I desire to do what is good, but cannot carry it out. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me, and so on. You might think that this was purely an autobiographical confession of Paul for our benefit. But you know, many scholars actually think that Paul here is writing as though he was speaking with Adam's voice. Adam, who was the author of death, if you like, the one through whom sin came into the world. Adam, the author of sin. Jesus, the author of salvation. We won't go into too much detail here now, but if you read the passage, you can sometimes see little bits that may, may point in that way. Uh, before our passage today, in, in verse 9, he says, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. He could be talking about himself, but he could be putting it into the context of Adam, 
who, of course, was before the law came. Anyway, Paul is possibly giving us this passage from Adam's point of view. But the I could also be what's called the universal I, talking about each one of us. You'd be familiar with this, perhaps, in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, that lovely hymn to, to the qualities of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. A familiar passage where it's in the first person, but actually it's not just about Paul, it's about all of us. Paul is talking about, not necessarily himself, but he's talking as though for us. We can be the subject, we should be the subject of this I in the passage. It's not about Paul, it's about all of us. I have to recognize the sin that lurks close by. I can be taken over by sin. And even at my best, I struggle with the conflicting interests of self, sin, and doing what is right. I need to turn to Christ Jesus, the one who rescues me from the body of death. It's all about me. It's all about I talking to me, to you, to each other. And I don't know about you, but I, I always love the way in which the, the Christian faith operates firmly at this personal level. It's not about keeping a set of laws and a religious code of practice. It's not only to do with us being part of a greater whole, the body of Christ, important though that is. It's not all about that. It's also about me and God, about you and God. If we are to find salvation and make our way closer to God as we journey on, then we need to nurture that personal relationship with Christ. In the Gospels, Jesus frequently is shown dealing with individuals. He calls individual disciples, you, come and follow me. He heals individuals, blind Bartimaeus, a leper, a paralyzed man, and so on. He addresses a woman caught in adultery. He calls down Zacchaeus, that little man from the tree. He encounters Nicodemus, who came to him by night. There are so many, so many examples of where Jesus interacts with individuals. It's an individual calling. Jesus is the one who bids me and you come to him. You'll know about the, I'm sure, the, the comfortable words, which are familiar for anybody, especially who uses the prayer book, but also in the little booklet that you have in church. Those comfortable words, which are addressed to... Uh, the congregation in the prayer book just after you've had the confession. These words of comfort. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a personal invitation and a personal promise. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, that's every one of us individually believing in him. Paul in 1 Timothy, this saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Not a nation of sinners, but individual sinners. This sinner and every sinner sitting in this room. And in the first epistle of John, chapter 2, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. If anyone sin, every individual it's all addressed to us 
each one of us personally. So Paul is talking with the first person here. He's talking uh, as though he's talking to himself, I. But he is speaking for every one of us too. And in the end, it's up to us. In the end, it's personal. We have choices. You know, with the Enquirer's Oracle, I could choose to send my invitations to the ball for any ridiculous hour, early or late, but I would soon find myself outside the social circle. And I'd like to close with an odd thing, really. It's a reference to a song that I heard many years ago, back in the late 70s. It's not so much a song, actually. It was a spoken word kind of song. And it was by a group called Magazine, who came from the punk rock era. So it may not be something that all of you are familiar with, but that doesn't matter. But I want to just refer to this, this little ditty. Um, and the premise, the premise of this song is, is called The Book. And the premise is that this man finds himself at the door of hell. Maybe he deserves to be there. His life has not been a shining example of sainthood, but nonetheless, he's mildly, mildly surprised to find himself standing there at the door of hell. As the man approaches, the elderly doorkeeper is sitting down reading a book. He gets up and he asks the man to hold his book for him for a moment while he opens the door. Naturally, the man just takes hold of the book and ponders whether this deed will tip the good deeds over the bad. But without further delay, he finds himself giving the book back to the man, the doorkeeper. They exchange a few words about the book, and he walks in through the door. It is as though, in a small way, he is helping himself enter hell. An odd little song, but it makes me realize that we have choices. Maybe not always just at that stage, but we have choices now. We have big choices and small choices. Choices have consequences, big consequences and small consequences. Small consequences can add up to big consequences. But in the end, it is up to me. Christ has won the victory. Let's not be in any doubt about that. He has won that victory over the grave. And again, we sang about that earlier. I do not need to be enslaved to sin any longer. The question then is, am I ready today and every day, to turn to Christ, to follow him, and gladly accept all that he has done for me and all that he offers me here today and in the life to come. Let us pray. Loving Lord, we thank you for the victory that you have won for us. Thank you that death can hold no more fear for those who are living in you. And so I pray, Lord, take me today as I am. I cannot come to you any other way. Take me, transform me according to your will. Break me, melt me, mold me, shape me, use me. And bring me with all your saints to the eternal home that you have prepared for me. Amen.